it's a constant battle with this ancient reptilian brain that we have. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. We kind of consume whatever's in front of us. From our studios in Malibu, California. And then my rational brain knows that there'll be food available when I'm hungry again. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast with Mark Sisson. And here we are, geared up for another question and answer session. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing fantastic. How are you, Brad? I'm great. We had a great show last week, and uh, some of these questions are are wonderful. And since then, more have been flowing in through our SpeakPipe tool, where you record the question, and also some nice ones that were written in. So how about if we jump right into it? Let's do it. Uh, Shelly recorded a nice, lengthy question I'm going to summarize in writing. And when you do record on SpeakPipe, uh, try to be concise and uh, think of a question that's appealing to the general audience. That'd be a nice one for Mark to tackle. Well, Shelly's a 55-year-old female. She got into the primal paleo scene through a boyfriend who's now out of the scene. And she reports that leaving her state and moving on, she's gained 15 pounds in the past year. So now she's at a point where she wants to lose 30 pounds of total excess body fat. She reports that she does not eat a lot of carbohydrates. She likes her 90% dark chocolate, which is plenty high. Um, She also reports that she has uh, some berries, some other fruits, and also is fond of having a sweet potato before she works out. Mark, I want to get into ketosis, but I'm not sure how. What can I do to lose this excess weight? Well, there's a couple of things to look at in this question, one of which is ideal body composition. And we don't know what her total weight is or what uh, she says she wants to lose 30. She had lost 15, gained it back. But I'll reiterate, uh, at some point, if you've lost a fair amount of weight and you've gotten down to a plateau, quite often that's a point where your body says, this is your ideal body composition right here. A little bit of fat uh, as a, as a uh, protective device on a 55-year-old woman, that's probably somewhat appropriate in many cases. So if your body says, look, I'm, I'm healthy, I have the energy I need, I don't get moody or depressed, um, I'm able to maintain this particular weight with, without a lot of calorie counting or portion control or any other stuff, I intuitively know how to do this, then I could argue that that's, that's an ideal body composition. Now, from there, if you want to lose more weight, we have to make some choices. We have to go, okay, what are the costs and benefits? What are the costs involved in dropping another 30 pounds from there? Uh, and one of those costs may be we might have to spend some time um, going into ketosis, and that's what she's indicated she wants to try. She may be a person who who is so uh, sensitive to what's going on in her body now that to get into ketosis, she may need to get under – 35 or 30 grams of carbs a day. So that sort of rules out the sweet potatoes um, and perhaps even the berries at this point, if in fact that's what she wants to do. So if you want to get into ketosis and you want to get you know serious about trying a few days or a few weeks in ketosis, you really do have to cut the carbs pretty, pretty dramatically in most cases. The highest levels of carb intake that I've heard of people uh, staying in ketosis are 75 to 100 grams a day. And that's for an athlete who's been in ketosis in and out cyclically for a few months or a few years and um, and is then strategically taking in these carbs at times of day when he or she knows that they won't interfere with, um, they won't turn off ketosis, that those carbs will be shunted directly into uh, glycogen stores and so forth. So for the average person, getting into ketosis means finding some healthy fats, 
you know, orchestrating a diet that includes uh, eggs, um, if you're into um, grass-fed beef and, and animal protein like that, certain uh, cuts of fish, um, chicken, uh, macadamia nuts, olive oil, avocados, um, certainly some salads. You can do salads uh, up to a point. I mean, I've we did an analysis a few years ago where we took a, a what I call a big ass salad, and uh, even though it looked like a lot of vegetables, when you broke down the um, the carbohydrate composition of it, it wasn't that much. It was probably twenty or twenty two grams of carbs total. So that's um, that's another aspect. Is getting into ketosis means being quite cognizant of uh, of your carb intake. But when you do get into ketosis, a certain number of things can happen that are that are that are good. And again, for women who are perimenopausal, postmenopausal, you got to be you got to be very diligent about how you do this, and 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 keep track of how you feel, and uh, and you know whether or not you're cold throughout the day, or you know hair falling out, or some of the symptoms of maybe um, hypothyroid as well. Um, and because I'm not a doctor, I can only advise on the strategy of, of orchestrating a diet, but typically I would suggest people work with their physician on this. The point is that when you become good at burning fat and you generate ketones and you're in ketosis, the body responds by building more uh, mitochondria. And the mitochondria are the, little, are the little energized powerhouses that actually burn the fat. The fat burns inside the mitochondria, then the mitochondria sends the ATP out to be used as energy. So the more mitochondria you have, the more you can burn fat. And that's the message that a low-carbohydrate diet sends to the body. Build more mitochondria, make the ones you have more efficient, learn to burn fats more effectively, and start to burn ketones effectively. When you start to burn ketones effectively, you basically reduce your body's dependency on glucose because most of the organs in the body that use glucose can also use ketones. The brain normally is fed – it depends on glucose because – we provide so much of it. When you start to cut back on the amount of glucose or carb- carbohydrate that converts to glucose that you take in, the brain becomes pretty good at burning ketones. And you can get to the point where you can reduce your entire daily brain glucose requirement to maybe 30 grams of, of glucose, and the rest is ketones. So as that skill becomes developed and as we become good at burning ketones and good at burning fat and ac- accessing stored body fat – one of the strategies we might use is to say, okay, now that I'm so good at burning fat and I don't need that much carbohydrate and I'm good at burning ketones, maybe I'll skip a meal. And so I'll, I'll, I'll eat normally at, at, at other meals, but I'll skip a meal. So instead of having three meals a day, I'll have two meals a day. Uh, and that'll be 500 calories that's coming off the thigh or the, or the belly and as opposed to coming off the plate of food that you just ate. And this is one of the benefits of becoming a fat-burning beast and learning how to, to get into ketosis and, and starting to develop that skill that not only has you uh, burning fat and accessing ketones and using ketones effectively, but it also regulates your appetite. Now, all of a sudden, it's not a blood sugar issue day in and day out or hour to hour during the day where if the brain doesn't get enough glucose, it's, it starts to freak out and says, you got to go eat. you got to go eat. you got to find, find a bagel. That kind of disappears, and the brain becomes good at burning ketones. The, the body is good at creating whatever glucose it needs, either from the glycerol that's, strapped, that's stripped off of a triglyceride molecule or from gluconeogenesis where the body takes 
uh, protein in the diet and converts it into glucose. So there are all these mechanisms whereby the body can produce enough glucose uh, so you'll never be really short on glucose for that matter. Uh, and over time, you develop this ability to self-regulate an appetite. And that's huge because I think appetite drives a lot of people. You know, we <laughs> we went to Tulum, Brad, and we at the at the uh, vacation experience in Tulum, the Primal Con, and there was an all-you-can-eat buffet uh, because it was an all-inclusive resort. And it really is, it's really interesting to watch people pile inordinate amounts of food on their plate just because it's available. And then because it's on their plate, they've been ingrained their entire lives to finish what's on your plate. I see so often people consuming two, three, four hundred calories more than maybe they should at a particular meal. Now, maybe they'll burn it off later in the day. Uh, maybe they're a person who can get away with that and the thermic effect of food will raise their metabolism automatically to help burn off those excess calories. But maybe they're not. Maybe they're someone who really does have to watch the caloric intake with regard to how many of the calories are burned and how many of the calories are stored as body fat. And that's where this, this ketosis experiment can come in quite handy. Now, the caveat is if you're a woman and you've, you've tried a very low-carb strategy, um, some people it works great. Some people it does not work as well. And I think you sort of have to look at, at what's going on and um, a week or two weeks in, kind of note how you feel and how this is working and are you losing the body fat and do you still feel energetic? And, and if the answer is yeah, then you could probably keep doing it for a while. If the answer is no, we got to go back and reconfigure the experiment. Now maybe we say, okay, ketosis isn't isn't working for me in this particular context. Maybe I'll add back some carbs. Maybe I'll find a level of carbohydrate intake that satisfies the requirements of my brain but doesn't put me over the top. And so maybe it's appropriate to experiment with you know, 75 to 125 grams of carbs a day as the first level of that experiment. So it's a – you know, there's no – one right or wrong answer for everyone and the job not just of me on Mark's Daily Apple but of Chris Kresser and Rob Wolf and and uh, you know everyone else Peter Atia in this space is to give you enough information arm you with enough information and tools so that you can conduct that experiment of one and and kind of figure out and tweak the knobs a little bit and figure out on your own what works best for you right i think that all you can eat <laughs> all-inclusive example is, is pretty relevant because there's so much socializing and conditioning that goes beyond just appetite and hormones. Um, and it is it is a concern, except for in the example that you brought up from Dreams to Loom, except for the sushi place. Because when I was in there and a sushi waiter comes over and says, is everything okay? It, it took me a while to realize that I could order up the exact same giant plate that I just ordered with no problem and not uh, not hitting my wallet too hard. So I definitely took advantage of that uh, all-you-can-eat example. But for many people, and I know you get this theme a lot, so I want to harp on it a little bit more, the, the departure from the natural appetite is a big concern, and it's emotions and all the other things that Dr. Alessandra Wall talked about at Dreams to Loom also, um, to get back to the permission to eat when you're hungry and finish when you're satisfied. Right, and we've, we've tried to uh, incorporate some other strategies like ask yourself kind of halfway through what would appear to be a normal meal and start to ask yourself, am I hungry for the next bite? Because the brain does want to finish everything that's on the plate. We're wired to scarf food because for two and a half million years up until 
gosh, up until just a few hundred years ago, food was pretty scarce most of the time. So it behooved any human that came across a big stash of food to consume as much as possible to take advantage of the wiring that would allow that person to store the excess calories as fat. Uh, and that was a good thing in the context of survival uh, 10,000 years ago. But it, it is not a good thing when you're confronted with vast quantities and copious amounts of food. And again, the social setting that would have you talk and eat and talk and eat and talk and eat. And, and then, you know, somebody else finishes their plate and goes back for seconds. And now, you know, you, you're, you tend to, to follow suit with that. And that gets back to what we talked about on the last, last podcast, which is surrounding yourself with like-minded people who are um, conscious of, of the choices they're making and conscious of food choices and things like that. So it's a, it's, it's a constant battle with this ancient reptilian brain that we have to, to, at, the, at the base of our brain to, to kind of consume whatever's in front of us and then the frontal part of our brain recognizing that if I say I'm not hungry for the next bite and I push this plate away, then I know my rational brain knows that there will be food available when I'm hungry again, whenever that is. So I don't have to, I don't have to uh, acquiesce to my, to my uh, hardwired limbic system that forces me to, to overeat just because th- that's the wiring that I carried through my genetic uh, recipe. Yeah, you can be reasonable. Wow, what an awesome concept. And, well, uh, you know, in, t- in today's in today's world, being reasonable and responsible um, are are two skills that we need to develop because those have been, um, in many cases, they've been taken away from us. Right, and there's another interesting item that you often bring up along these lines, and it's uh, I, I've seen you get cornered at several occasions where people say, "Mark, I'm already." under 100 grams of carbs a day. I'm already doing this good. I'm already a fat-burning beast. And you often mention the sprinting element to try to get those last 5, 10, or 15 extra pounds of body fat off. Yeah, I, I've said for a long time, nothing cuts you up like sprinting. So if you're a person who has plateaued and your your metabolism is settled in and you're fine, your, your body thinks you're fine where you're at, and it's and you, but you're, you're, again, your frontal lobe and uh, and your ego are suggesting that there's more that could be done to lose more weight. Uh, sprinting is is something that a lot of people I find, even though they've read the Primal Blueprint, they've done the 21 day total body transformation, they somehow have failed to incorporate the sprinting in. It has an effect, and it's really quite simple to to figure out a way to sprint. It doesn't have to be at the track. It doesn't have to be running. It doesn't have to be on the beach, which is where I'll do most of mine. It can be in the gym, on the bicycle, or on the elliptical. But it's basically, you know, doing a warm up of five to ten minutes, and then ramping, ramping up the output until you're going a hundred percent for thirty seconds. Could be twenty seconds if you're just starting. Could be a minute if you're really good at it, and then letting your heart rate recover, uh, either an easy spin or an easy jog or a walk to recover, and then doing it again and doing this multiple times in the course of one workout. And typically, those workouts don't take a half an hour. They're they're, you know, it's a lot of work compressed into a short period of time. But it has this amazing effect of, of ramping up the metabolism from, from one metabolic unit to maybe 15 or 20 or in some cases 25 or 30 times that metabolism for a very brief period of time. And that stresses all of the enzyme systems in the body that are involved in, in energy production. So you don't really burn a lot of calories while you're doing it, but you create this need for more mitochondria. You create this this uh, uh, instance where there's more throughput of fat through the mitochondria in the muscles and, and other organs of the body 
And the, the net effect is you start to your body starts to take more fat out of storage to just kind of replenish the energy and to keep you going on a, on a regular basis simply because you created a short-term burst of, of speed and the need for that energy. Right, and there's some scientific data referenced in the Primal Blueprint Expert Certification, which I'll ask you about in a moment, that suggests that sprinting is the only form of exercise that actually directly contributes to reduction in body fat because of, and you've talked about this in detail too, that the burning of calories through exercise, especially chronic exercise, just corresponds to an increase in appetite. So it's a, it's a wash when you're talking about body composition, weight loss. But sprinting, conversely, will upregulate the, the genes that, that build muscle and burn fat. And because it's so brief in duration, you're not getting that massive hunger afterwards. And also, you're actually getting an appetite regulation because of elevated body temperature and other reasons. Exactly. It, it really is quite interesting that people to this day still sort of keep track of how many calories they burn doing uh, such and such an exercise. And the reality is, and that's one of the initial problems I had with chronic cardio was going to my gym and seeing the same people on the treadmill four or five days a week for five or six years and never losing any weight. And and I feel bad for these people. Sometimes they, not only do they not lose weight, they tend to gain weight and then they tend to get jiggly, you know, because that amount of repetitive motion uh, bouncing up and down without any real resistance training to to cause the muscles to really become fully contracted and tense um, just creates a, 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 a jiggle effect that may manifest itself in what, what appears to be cellulite. And it just, it's just it's like really you're, all this work that these people are doing in the stated objective of trying to lose body fat and the exact opposite is happening. So when you – just to reiterate what you said, when you go to the gym and you burn – four or 500 calories in an hour on the treadmill, the brain basically says, well, this is a repetitive motion thing. If this clown's going to try this again tomorrow, I got to go home and I got to eat at least four or 500 calories to replenish the glycogen that we burned off because we burned off a lot of glycogen. We actually, actually haven't burned off that much fat, which is, again, ironic. So there's a tendency to carbohydrate load every single day if you are a runner or a cyclist and you've been doing this for a long time. Uh, there's a tendency to overdo those carbohydrates. So once you've filled up the the glycogen stores, which doesn't take much, now you're, the excess calories from the carbohydrate and the fats and the proteins tend to be stored as fat. So it's this it's this cycle that continues on and on, and it's just ironic because these are people who really want to do the right thing. They're really trying hard, and they're working hard, and they're struggling and suffering. So conversely, when you go to the track or you go to the the Versa climber or the elliptical trainer or, in my case, uh, the, the sprint bike at the gym and you really hit it hard for these brief bursts, you don't burn that many calories. But the fact that you get your heart rate up to a max heart rate, the fact that you are going all out, the fact that you are uh, out of breath, completely out of breath at the end of each of these particular intervals is enough of a signaling mechanism to, to again, to make the changes that you just described throughout the body. So it really isn't about the calories burned in that workout. It's about the signals that we're sending to the genes to rebuild the body in a stronger, more efficient metabolism that burns calories better. Right. I'll never forget, as a distance runner at UC Santa Barbara, we'd be running and running our laps around the track and working so hard. And uh, the guy who trained there 
was named Jürgen Hinksen. He was the number two decathlete in the world and probably the most ripped physical specimen on the planet. And he'd just show up. Uh, he'd take a few pole vaults. He'd throw the shot a few times, maybe run a couple sprints. And then his girlfriend would show up and he'd leave the track in 30 or 45 minutes. And that was it. And he had such a different genetic signaling than these chronic athletes that were running themselves into the ground. And it showed in his physique. Right. So I guess the, the take-home message here is if you're stalled at a plateau and if you haven't tried sprinting, then give that a try. Give that a go. Uh, don't do – really don't – there's no other adjustments that, that would need to be made. This would be part of your experiment is just try sprinting for, say, four weeks and, and see how you feel and see if there's any uh, shift in your body composition. Hey, let's hear from a college student named Zach. Hi, Mark. This is Zach Rusk from The Ohio State University. I was wondering if you would clear something up for me. You say you have a compressed eating window from about 1 to 7, but you like cream in your coffee. Do you not count the calories that you drink as part of your fasting? Uh, great question. Um, yeah, I certainly I, – I, I don't – count them as part of my fasting. I mean, I don't put that much cream in my coffee. I really just kind of, I don't make a bulletproof coffee or I don't make an egg coffee, uh, which is one of the, the things that we've featured on Mark's Daily Apple. I, I, I basically fooled around with the egg coffee just as an answer to the bulletproof coffee concept. But a lot of these um, powered coffees have four, five, 600 calories in them. And they, and they, while they're not part of a fast, if there's mostly fat in there, they continue the effects of the of the fast. That is, they they continue the ketosis that's going on and the fat burning. So there is that element of uh, that that while it's not you're and you're taking in four or five hundred calories, which certainly does count toward your daily caloric intake, and particularly if you're trying to lose weight. But the amount of cream that I put in my coffee, it's less than a tablespoon, and you know, I put a little bit of sugar in, but again, that's like f seriously like four four calories or whatever. So, I, and coffee by itself has no calories, so I really don't count that as um, as having negatively impacted my so-called fast or my so-called compressed eating window. I'm really I'm really after the effects of um, well, mostly I'm after the habitual taste of coffee in the morning that is part of my ritual, and I'm a big fan of these kinds of rituals. So I have a cup of coffee every morning when I get up. I go outside. I, I, I typically watch the sunrise, do a little bit of gratitude process. I go back in. Um, I quickly read two papers, uh, skim them basically, and then I do all the puzzles in the Los Angeles Times. And uh, I can usually do that inside of a half an hour. And then I go to work. So the coffee is just part of that ritual. Um, I like the caffeine for its fat stimulating effects, but I don't, I don't rely on caffeine. I don't abuse the caffeine. Um, I rarely have another cup of coffee during the day. And if I do, probably because I'm on the road and I, I stop at Starbucks. So um, interesting question. And uh, again, the even if you're doing a four or 500 calorie coffee that has Kerrygold butter in it and MCT oil and a bunch of other uh, fats, because there are no carbs in there and because there is this uh, bit of caffeine in there, it does not disrupt ketosis. Uh, which is one of the main reasons that uh, a lot of people choose to do bulletproof coffee. But on the other hand, it's it's still contributing 500 calories to the bottom line in some cases, which is a lot. Yeah, that LA Times crossword puzzle in a half hour, that's not bad, man. I mean, some of those answers take a half hour to find on Google. No, 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 dude. I do all the puzzles. So I do the Sudoku, the crossword, the jumble, 
Um, and there's one other puzzle that I forget the name of. So it's four puzzles I do, and I can I can usually do all of them in under half half an hour. And then when you get to work, that's why you're so tired. You don't really care <laughs> in the <right>. meeting. <laughs> okay, we got a question from Heather. And I got to give her credit. Her last name is Starch, and she's making an effort to be primal. So good for her. Uh, but she's having a little struggle. Let's hear about it. Hi, uh, my name is Heather, and I'm from the Dallas-Fort Worth area in Texas. My family and I, we went primal in May of 2013, and we've had great success, and we're very appreciative of the program that we found. Um, the question that I have is about three months into being primal, I started experiencing nausea when eating certain types of foods. Um, first, it was macadamia nuts, and then almonds, and avocados, eggs, um, and, and finally, just recently, coconut oil. Um, and I've been test had all kinds of blood work done to see you know what it might be, and everything comes back normal. And and all of these foods, it's just since going primal, and and only on an empty stomach. If I have something else to eat first and then eat those to, uh, eat those foods, I'm fine. And so I was just wondering if there's been anybody else um, that you've heard heard from or heard of that since going primal, there's been certain foods, especially um, you know higher higher fatty foods, that they have issues eating with. And if so, what might be the cause of what's going on? And if there's anything that can be done um, to alleviate it, look forward to hearing any possible answer. Thanks, Mark. Well, Heather, I really, I really don't have an answer for this. Um, it's an interesting phenomenon. Um, I've heard uh, some people will uh, eventually develop an aversion to bacon, say, just because they went whole hog, literally, when they went primal and started eating bacon at every meal. Um, but to have developed uh, this um, nausea over consuming what, are, what amounts to some of the, the healthiest fats you could get, particularly monounsaturated, the, the um, avocados, the, the coconut oil, the macadamias, uh, even the almonds to a certain extent. Interesting that you say that that's on, a, um, on an empty stomach. So I guess the, one of the take-home messages for anybody here who is experimenting is what happens when you eliminate those foods for a long time. I mean I think we can all live without some of those foods or we can all live uh, only having them on a uh, on an otherwise full stomach if if that's the case but I'm not sure you know it could be a stomach pH thing I don't know uh, you know we could start to talk about uh, SIBO small intestinal bacterial overgrowth uh, stomach pH a number of other things that, that may or may not uh, have an impact as to what what happens when these high fat foods hit your stomach uh, when it's otherwise an empty stomach the you know the the, the short fix is to is to either eliminate them or not consume them on an empty stomach the long-term fix would be to eliminate them entirely and then maybe reintroduce them in uh, four or five months but I really don't uh, I've not seen that or heard of that happening frequently if any of the listeners to the podcast have had that experience I'd love to hear about it and see you know what uh, what steps you took or, or if any to uh, to rectify the situation Great. Let's take one more, and then I want to ask you a little bit about the expert certification that's coming out. So here's a question written in from Tracy in Old Bridge, New Jersey. Dear Mark, I appreciated your extensive commentary about the dangers of excess artificial light after dark in the Primal Connection. 
I've had long time habit of reading myself to sleep, either with an iPad or a small bedside light. Sometimes I awaken in the middle of the night and will read for a handful of minutes to help me fall back asleep. Could this practice be messing with my melatonin and healthy sleep cycling? Uh, the answer is no. It's it's a very appropriate way to uh, engage in biphasic sleeping or polyphasic sleeping that we talk about a lot in the Primal Connection. Americans, in particular, uh, seem to have this notion that if you don't get a, a solid, uninterrupted eight hours that you failed in your sleep mission. Uh, but a lot of studies show that most of the world, particularly in third world countries, exhibit a, a biphasic or polyphasic sleep cycle where you might sleep three or four hours, wake up, mill around, maybe fix a, a, a little bit of tea, uh, have a chat with your, with your family members for a little while, maybe have sex, uh, maybe look after the kids, uh, and then go back to sleep and finish off the night's uh, second phase of sleeping and wake up refreshed in the morning. So there's nothing wrong with that conceptually. Uh, the only hacks that I would interject, and maybe you're already doing this, is that when you do get up to read, uh, try to read under a yellow light of some kind. It could be just a yellow incandescent bulb. It uh, could be with um, Brad's famous yellow sunglasses that he wears. Uh, but something that doesn't cast uh, too much of a, a deep blue light onto uh, your reading material because that's what would disrupt the melatonin. Otherwise, uh, a yellow light would be fine. And and, and reading to, to fall back asleep again seems like a very pleasant way to um, orchestrate that, that biphasic sleep cycle. That's great. And I let it slip earlier in the podcast that we are imminently launching the Primal Blueprint Expert Certification. And we've uh, had this movement going for a long time, the Primal Paleo Evolutionary Health Movement, uh, but no real formal uh, way to validate people's expertise. So tell us a little bit about your philosophy in developing this program. Well, a, a number of people, uh, particularly health professionals, and not necessarily just uh, MDs, but uh, chiropractors, physicians' assistants, uh, registered dietitians, uh, nurses, LPNs, RNs, trainers, have expressed an interest in getting some sort of acknowledgement that they understand how the primal blueprint works so that when they go to explain it to their clients or their patients, they've got uh, you know, some backup that says, yeah, that says, I've, I've completed this program. I, I understand the mechanism of how this works. I can or help you orchestrate a healthy eating or lifestyle plan. So we created this um, level one certification. It's, a, it's basically uh, designed to test your knowledge of the, not just how the primal blueprint works from a, the um, uh, standpoint of you know, establishing a program or an eating style, but a little bit of biochemistry, a little bit of understanding how the body works, a little bit of knowing uh, the ins and outs of ketosis, for instance, and being able to answer the kind of questions that the, uh, that the client or the patient might bring up and do so in a way that, uh, that it gives them the confidence that you know what you're talking about. So we created this um, online program. It's uh, 13 modules, uh, each of which has a uh, fairly detailed test at the end of it. And so in order to move on to the next module, you've got to pass the test and, and get at least an 80% on the test. Uh, at the end of the final module, uh, we will certify that you have ex exhibited a, uh, a passing amount of knowledge in how to present the Primal Blueprint to your clients or customers. Um, we, we're talking now about maybe some level two really in-depth uh, in detail things. And by the way, this isn't just for health professionals. It's for any 
any individual who wants to get certified and, and test his or her knowledge and kind of get acknowledgement that they really do understand the mechanisms by which the primal blueprint and gene expression um, actually can can help a person rebuild, renew, regenerate, and and reinvigorate themselves. So everything's online, which is great, and you have a video overview of each module and then some extensive reading material followed by an exam, and our beta testers are reporting that these exams are pretty rigorous, but we are here to help, and anyone who's struggling or who fails an exam can engage with us to make sure that they uh, will get a command of the material so they can feel comfortable graduating and getting their certification. Yeah, I mean, really, some of the the test questions essentially are so detailed that you really do have to read the material to get them. You can't just to probably take the test having read the primal blueprint two years ago. And even though you might have grokked it fully, we go a lot deeper in this uh, in this certification because we really do want you to understand the underlying science and the mechanisms behind some of the recommendations that you will probably be making to your clients. Mark, thanks for the heads up, and uh, pay attention on marksdailyapple.com, primalblueprint.com, for the imminent launch of the Primal Blueprint Expert Certification. Thank you so much for listening to the Primal Blueprint Podcast with Mark Sisson, and we'll talk to you next time.